So, as a professional kangaroo shooter and an expert on local wildlife, how big would an animal, say, a razorback, how large would a razorback have to be to actually carry a two-year-old child over any distance? About four or five times bigger than anything I've seen or heard of. Yeah. You worship for an animal to have grown to such an extraordinary size. He must be extremely shy and cunning, or else... Even an exceptionally large and uh, cunning beast couldn't have dragged the boy. Where to? Anywhere. No, not for any distance. See, the Razorback's a kind of cowardly bastard, usually a good... Welcome to The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied landscape that is Australian cinema. On this, the final of our Australian New Wave uh, set of of episodes uh, combined with The Wake and Fright, uh, Man from Hong Kong, Puberty Blues. Uh, On this particular episode, we look at 1984's Razorback, and I'm joined by Simon Sherry to discuss this particular film. Uh, One of the things which uh, Simon uh, mentioned to me after we'd finished recording as well was the the fact that this is actually based on a book by Peter Brennan, and the book was actually commissioned to help get the film kicked off and started. So that's an interesting fact. And the other aspect which we forgot to mention in our long discussion, which you'll hear in a moment, is that the music is by Ivor Davies, who... Australians may know as one of the the people behind the band Ice House. So pretty exciting stuff there. Uh, So without me continually rambling on for too much longer, um, let's have a listen to the trailer and then we'll be back uh, with Simon and myself to discuss the film. Somewhere in the Australian outback, he is waiting. Something big scared him away. Like what? I don't know. But it was huge, as big as a rhino. Jake Cummer, the obsessed hunter, determined to stop it. Got to come to the water hole to drink. Jake, get some help, Andy. No, he's mine. (laughs) You're a bad fighters. Animal campaigner. And dumped at the Pet Pack Cannery eight miles west of here. The American animal campaigner who got more than the story she bargained for. Don't rub her up! She wasn't very popular around here. What'd you do to my wife, Benny? And the crazed brothers who protected their own secrets at all costs. You ask too many bloody questions, you know that? Do you know what happened to her? Razorbacks. Carl Winters searching for the answers. Godless vermin. He's only got two states of being. Dangerous or dead. That boar destroyed his life. Now listen, Bill, you're in the middle of bugger all here, so for Christ's sake, don't go walk about. We'll never find you. Now we'll be back in five or six hours. Gregory Harrison, in his first major motion picture, running for his life. You're going to do it. Just bloody do it. Hello? Come on, man! Shoot me! You finished the kangaroo off! Shoot me! Produced by Hal McElroy from Australia's hottest new director, Russell Mulcahy. Razorback. He's only got two states of being. Dangerous or dead. 
rice about it. Um, so welcome back, everybody. And after listening to the trailer there, it's a pretty exciting film. And I'm very happy to be able to say that I've got a, a local person who usually have international guests uh, on the show to discuss the films. But actually, I have an artist or rather a, a hairy man, as he likes to be called, um, and somebody who actually he works with Umbrella Entertainment, who most of these films that we discuss on the show have had some kind of association with Umbrella or representation or release, rather, uh, through Umbrella, um, specifically Man from Hong Kong and, of course, Razorback, which we're discussing on this episode. So the man I'm talking about is Simon Cherry. Welcome to the show. Thanks for, for joining me to discuss this film. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's um, fun to yeah get on the podcast and, and chat about what I think is one of my favourite Australian films, basically. Yeah, it is a good film. And... You know, part of this series is uh, this particular group of episodes that is covering essentially films from the last new wave, or not the last new wave, that's in the, the title of this podcast, from the Australian new wave, which was yep. in the 70s and the 80s. And mm -hmm. Razorback came at the end of the 80s. It was one of the sort of, uh, you know, horror films in a way that, that not only launched um, the career of uh, Russell Mulcahy, and I'm certain that I'm... I'm screwing up his pronunciation of his surname. Yeah. But, K is how I remember hearing it, but yeah, who yeah. knows? <laughs> <laughs> and so it launched his career, and of course he went off and did uh, Highlander, which a lot of people may know um, as a film, you know, that, that a lot of sci-fi fans love. But Razorback yeah, is certainly, yeah. It, Razorback's a great horror film for me, at least. I, it's a film that I really enjoyed. Um, so as you're saying, it's one of your favourite Australian films. So what's your history with this film? And... When did you sort of come into enjoying it and appreciating it? Well, I mean, I've, I've seen it, you know, uh, probably not as many times as I'd like because it's, it's one of those films that sort of disappeared um, from the video landscape for a while there, I think. Um, but my first encounter was it, with it was as a kid when it um, hit uh, VHS or oh, yeah. Vita. Um, and I remember... My parents were relatively lax, I should say, with the as I think a lot of parents might have been at, at the time with with our generation when it came to the type of movies you got to see. Definitely. Um, I remember an awkward experience when I was about five when they took me in to see Blade Runner. I think they were thinking it was going to be Star Wars, and and <laughs> that that that, went, that uh, left an impression as well. But um, yeah, so it was just one of those movies that I got to sit down with um, my parents and watch, and it just really. Um, you know, blew my my mind as a kid. Um, found it quite terrifying, particularly that um, my memory of it was was less of the opening scene um, with Bill Kerr, but more the the scene where um, the American journalist um, or animal rights activist gets attacked mm. um, after those lovely charming brothers <laughs> leave her leave her um, leave her for dead, basically. And uh, that really, that and the hallucination when um, oh, I can't remember a hero's name when he first stumbles upon yeah, Carl uh, Carl Winters, yeah, yeah that's right yeah. when he when he first stumbles upon the um, the station where uh, the the young lass that um, ends up helping him out is, and she turns around and she's got the pig face. That was another um, thing that really um, stuck with me as a kid. Yeah. Um, and just like I, I hadn't watched it, to be honest, I hadn't watched it for years until um, a few weeks ago, getting preparing for this podcast, and I'd forgotten just how 
um, beautifully shot and staged the whole thing is. Um, I think, you know, your impressions of a film when you're a kid are, are, are very um, upfront and visceral, You're not, and your memories are going to be a bit, especially when you're getting to be an older older person, uh, your memories are a bit blurry. But, um, yeah, just, just seeing the, the way the whole film was set up um, was just, uh, stunning the costumes uh, costuming was another thing that struck me um particularly the two brothers and the type of get up that they're wearing you know that sort of clashes dramatically with um a lot of the sort of bread and butter costumes of the outback people mm. that they encounter they're almost like refugees from um some bogan version of the wild boys video that mulcahy um worked on back in his music video days, I thought. So, um, yes, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. Definitely. Because definitely. it's the, you know, the look of, of how they're, they're dressed and everything is really sets them apart from the rest of the town. And yeah, it's almost, it's, it's almost like they're trying to, um, elevate themselves. Like we're, Hey, we're cool cats. We're dressing like what we think city folk would, would look like maybe based on having seen a few, you know, music videos or movies or something and and completely fucking it up because there are a couple of deadbeat bogans who really don't know, you know, shoot ruse and run this abbot, you know, illegal abattoir out in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah. And, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it really sticks out. I think that's one of the things, like, you know, when you look at films like Mad Max and Stone and, um, you know, a lot of these sort of exploitation films, there's always that kind of element with costuming and production design that's a little bit more outlandish. Mm. It, it, it kind of, um, to me anyway, it sort of dislocates your experience of, of what you think the typical outback is going to be, where, especially for the, the characters who are outsiders coming into it. Um, so, yeah, just rambling a bit there. But no, I, no, it's I, look, good. Ramble away. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I love this film. And... Um, yeah, it's just it's just a solid horror film, a solid creature feature, but it's also got, I mean, you know, people mentioned that the Azaria Chamberlain mm. aspects, like with Bill Kerr's character and, and what happens to his grandson under his care, and the sort of you know, sort of the the big pig took my baby kind of scenario, um, which didn't strike me as a kid again because you know I was aware of, I think everybody was aware of what happened, mm. um, you know, at least a basic story, even when we were kids. Um, but seeing it as a, you know, seeing it again as an adult and just, you know, things like that sort of striking you that were part of the sort of the zeitgeist at the time. Um, well, definitely. It, I think, you know, sorry, the, sorry to interrupt the, I think it's really interesting. The, the beginning as well, you know, as you're saying the the comparison with the Chamberlain story, and then there's that trial, which runs yeah, over the, um, the opening credits. Yeah, exactly. That courtroom. Cause you have this this horrible moment which, you know, where, where the child's taken and then, yeah, you go to like the, the sort of little courtroom which is I think like the hall or, a, mm. you know, some random building there and 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 he's on trial but, of course, he, he doesn't get sort of arrested or anything. I think they say that there's, there was no evidence. They, they couldn't actually put it on him. But then you have this lovely sort of, um, uh, you know, Moby Dick situation now where he, he's the Ahab of the film, really. Yes. And, and in a way, um, you know, you could say um, our, our, our friend from uh, across the ocean who comes along, that he's kind of almost the Ishmael in the, in the scenario and, and seeing some of it play out. But, yeah, there's just there's a lot of levels, um, you know, 
operating in the film that that's pretty um, fascinating to me. And you know, I'm I'm a, an educated layman, so I, I'm not going to um, try and and say that I know exactly what I'm talking about. But even just in the the whole notion of um, you know uh, colonialization through the pig, you know, he, yes. the Razorback isn't a native animal. He's like given these sort of supernatural um, properties as if he's almost like a bunyip or some sort of creature from the outback, but he's an import, you know, and, and the hero is an import he, he, who's come in um, looking for his wife who, who also came in. So, and, and, and the industry of the, ta- of, of the um, town is killing kangaroos, and this is one of the things they say that the pigs have been doing as well. You've got the illegal um, pet food factory, which I think they kind of imply that the razorback has been growing so much because it's basically been eating whatever it can get hold of, mm. you know, the refuse and everything. So there's there's some interesting stuff, I think, there. The fact that I, I think you might blink and miss maybe one or two Aboriginal actors that show up Yes, <laughs> seem to say you're in the outback, but aside from that, it's all very much, um, you know, a white Anglo-Saxon town, and and yeah, it's but it's a, it's almost like the Razorback is a, an extension of that in in some ways, I guess, and I find that pretty fascinating too. So no, I definitely agree with that, and certainly one of the things I find interesting, um, having watched this recently, and then also Wake and Fright, and then also on top of that. Uh, welcome to Whoop Whoop. They're all they all kind of blend in together in a sense that you know. And welcome to Whoop Whoop. Obviously, this isn't an episode on that film, but it certainly pulls from both uh, Razorback and Wake and Fright in the sense that that's got its own illegal pet food and stuff like that. And oh, definitely, you know, definitely. That they've got people who are essentially, uh, you know, for want of a better term, they're they're dragging everything out of the 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 wasteland that is the outback and mm. yeah and then the pigs are left behind um one of the things i find really interesting the thing i love about this film the most is certainly uh dean semler was the cinematographer and mm. he for people who aren't familiar with him um he did the cinematography on dances with wolves i think he won an oscar for that uh, yeah i think right yeah and then he also did most recently did cinematography for maleficent so you know, he certainly has a, a great eye for, uh, for for cinematography. And, mm. you know, to to praise the uh, transfer that is on the Umbrella Blu-ray, and I highly recommend getting the Umbrella Blu-ray as well because it has a lot of great special features, but the transfer is phenomenal. It looks stunning. Like, it is a really, really stunning-looking film. And, and going back to the, the sort of that dream sequence in a way where the, the uh, sort of horse-slash- uh, boar skeleton launches out of the the sand is terrifying, mm-hmm. really, really oh. terrifying. And yeah, exactly. And, uh, no, sorry, uh, no, I was no. just going to say the the palette. Like, um, I mean, people get really excited about Fury Road's palette, which you know, I love the, the the way that they you know Miller really pulls the the, the sort of azure blue and and the and the red dust and everything. But really, this is not unusual for for outback representation like this is reflected well too like the the sort of the browns and the reds of the landscape really pop and then at night time there's this lovely sinister blue kind of it's almost i I don't know how much might have been done on a soundstage or not but there are elements where it almost feels like it's it's being shot inside but it still looks you know it 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 almost looks like a supernatural landscape where you're seeing the sort of 
debris from various corpses of kangaroos and pigs and God knows what else just strewn about these trees that are practically all dead. Um, it just really gives it a very haunting and, and terrifying um, atmosphere, which I think really works well at the night time. But then, then, of course, you have moments like that poor bugger whose um, house gets pretty much... Oh, yeah. <laughs> ...by the Razorback. Um, takes, his, takes his telly and drags it off into the outback. Still going. I'm not sure how the hell that happened, but... Um, <laughs> But it's a but great yeah. shot, though. It's a it's a really great shot, and that I think that goes back to Russell Mulcahy's um, sort of he he started off working on doing uh, video killed the radio star like that was his first piece of work. And I didn't realize I fucking yeah. love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what a great way to announce yourself as a as a director as well. Hey, you know I'm going to create you know music videos essentially and. That like shots like that where the the section of the house gets dragged away and yeah the TV's still going that's just a fantastic shot and it's it's one of the memorable things about this film too and you know the thing I also love as well is that there's no really there's no real main character per se because you know we're introduced to the the old man to begin with and you know, mm. loses his uh, his grandson there and then the the woman comes in from america the the human rights person uh, working with, yeah, with john, john howard as their sidekick which yeah. i thought was, um it's always fun to see young young john howard show up and things but yeah 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 and and he's certainly one of the the more prolific actors during the the new wave mm. era as well um and then you know she disappears and you know for a period of time i remember when i first watched it and i was uh, you know probably early teens was when I first watched this film. And I think I remembered sort of thinking that, oh, maybe the brothers are the lead characters of this film. And, you know, there is a certain point that they, they almost are in a way because they're the people that you spend sort of the most time with. And then of course, you know, the, the woman's uh, partner comes across to come and investigate and to, to find out exactly what's going on. But yeah, there's no real main character and it works quite well because, you still get an understanding of who they are as individuals and you, you know, you're experiencing all of these new unique uh, terrors Mm -hmm. of this, this giant beast uh, that terrifies them, you know, in the, in the outback. And it's just fantastic. I think it's really, really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree completely because yeah, you'd almost say that the the Razorback himself is the through line, which I guess, you know, the obvious comparison with Jaws, the, the, Mm. the shark, like their presence, is in the film, they're not overt until the end, really, because, uh, you know, much like George, you, you don't really see the Razorback that often. You see what he destroys in his wake, um, and you get a few, you know, um, sort of moments where, where you see him attack, but mainly it's just sort of just the, the dread of his presence. Um, so, yeah, the character, in a way, I think that allows the filmmaker to get more characters in there and explore them without, yeah, without having to have a real key protagonist. And mm. uh, they sort of, yeah, they're, they're sort of in the orbit. But then you've got the the threat is um, multiple because then yeah, you have the brothers who, you know, Haywood and uh, Chris Haywood and David Argue just play them beautifully. Like it's it, it, they're 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 almost. Like, uh, just thinking about Welcome to Whoop Whoop as well, one of the things I love about that, again, I know it's not the Whoop Whoop episode, but <laughs> I, it's kind of like I felt like that's the closest in a way we've had uh, our own version of The Hills Have Eyes. Yes. And there's that same element that these are quite, kind of almost like the mutant offspring of 
um, you know, white Australia in the outback. Yep. And I, I think um, it, it adds a level of weirdness that really, yeah, creeps you out and, and sort of reminds you that, um, you know, the country isn't, it isn't a, a Charles Chevelle film, it's not, or it's not the Overlanders, I said, um, you know, it's not always going to be charming farm folk and, and you know, um, the odd magic Aborigine, it's, it's going to be just as many sort of terrifying and messed up, um, you know, uh, individuals out there, yeah. uh, you know, before you even get to a film like, say, Wolf Creek, which is obviously the, the most overt extension of that because we go, you know, you, you take a guy like... Um, these type of weird outback characters and basically the logical extension of making him, you know, Freddy, well, not Freddy Krueger, but, you know, like a, a, a boogeyman kind of character. Yeah. Um, yeah. And whereas here they're, they're just kind of these weird fringe elements that sort of seem to be acceptable though. Yep. Like the brothers out there um, as fucking weird as they dress and look and operate and they're wanky, wanky, hands off, wanky, <laughs> kind of Chris Hayward. Oh, I, I don't know how he pulls that off, but um, but they're almost like they're not viewed as, um, they don't seem to be viewed as like outcasts within the community. Like they're, yeah, they seem to be, um, you know, a big part of it. They're, they're pretty prominent in the scene when she first goes into the pub. Um, they're not like... Yeah, they're not like they're sort of um, freakish characters. Yeah, they're um, they're normalised almost, which is... Yeah, I agree. They're not seen as, as strange people. And, you know, what they're doing is, is illegal and stuff. And But, you know, everybody needs pet food if you've got a dog and stuff like that. So mm. people just go, yeah, all right, no worries. You keep on doing that and, and she'll be right. So there's no problems and, there. <laughs> and, and, I mean, look, I just... Just thinking about the, those characters, one of the creepiest moments I think in this film is actually David Argue's line when they first attack her car and then she gets out and then, um, you know, beating her up and he's mm. basically getting ready to rape her, but he stops and sort of awkwardly says, do you want to make love? Yeah. Like, oh. like he's asking her out on a fucking date and they've just run her off the road. <laughs> And look like they're basically terrorising her, and then he suddenly turns into this schoolboy for a moment um, when he's about to commit this absolutely horrible act. And so there's just this weird. It's not a charm. It just adds to how repellent mm. they are, how weird they are as characters, you know. And and I think um, it's really the off kilter weirdness of the movie that that helps it work in its favour because yeah, it's not a straight film. It's kind of, you know, again, the Jaws thing, Jaws is set up as a typical kind of, you know, community. The characters are all pretty vanilla. You know, you get someone like Quint Dreyfus's character and yeah. Quint come to the picture and they're larger than life in their own way or oddball, you know, kind of characters. Whereas Razorback, the whole fucking landscape, the whole community out there is weird on on a bunch of different levels it's like again it's like this weird mutant version of civilization where where people like those brothers can operate and be normalized you know they're they're not yeah they're not stashed away anywhere even though they live in their weird little mine hideout with animals hanging from the ceiling and shit but again they're just like you know they're they're the dudes that run the pet the illegal pet food business there and i find that really adds to the the horror element, in a way, like through the absurdity of it. 
Well, that's the thing as well is that you know the the actual pig itself is is a great creation and it, and it works. You know, even after all these years, it still works as a you know as a mammoth beast and and it's terrifying. But you know, obviously leaning on that jaws analogy as well in the sense that if you had the 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 actual razorback itself as the main terror threat throughout the whole entire film it wouldn't work as much because because you could see the flaws in some ways and you'd be focusing on that and i yeah, think yeah. that what works really well is that you know with these two characters they make up for any kind of lost tension or fear that yep. might have been you know tried to obtain with just focusing on the actual pig itself so you know, there are the two elements there that, that work so well. And, you know, it's really great as well when they get their comeuppance in a way at the end. That that climax is just brilliant. And you do kind of feel sorry for one of them in a, in a way when he's hanging in the hole there and, you know, you're yeah. like, just pull him out. You know, all right, he knows he's yeah. done wrong. He understands and stuff like that. But, you know, you they get their comeuppance and it's a, it's a really great uh, theatrical moment, really uh, explosive, is, especially oh. after seeing the, uh, the pig tear down so many different houses. It's, mm. it's interesting to see the, you know, the, the, the cannery essentially torn down at the end, in a sense. Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah, even if it gets to maybe Looney Tunes kind of levels of destruction with the, um, with the fan and the, yeah. you know, the minting machine at the end. But, yeah, no, and, and that whole sequence where Argue's character is trying to run away mm-hmm. and he's going through the sort of gullies and you can tell that the Razorback's following him through there until it gets there and he's trying to scramble up the mud. and and But all the same, he's, he's still just as, like, there's something, I don't know, there's just something really delightfully unsettling about, even then, like his character is so absurd. Yeah, <laughs> like there's a comical edge to how he gets taken out, which I really, I really dig that about this movie. And it's, um, yeah, it's just. Uh, I think you're right. I think they do fill a void that would have happened if it was just you know a giant pig in the in the desert mm. occasionally killing. Because in a way that like. The way I saw it is that there's almost a symbiotic relationship between the Razorback and those two guys because, again, like it seems implied that in the years after, um, you know, Bill Kerr's character's grandson gets taken, like it's two or three years, I think it says yeah. at yeah. one point, that it's been getting fat and bigger and more powerful off of the pro- byproducts of all the, you know, um, meat being all the poor, unfortunate roommate that's going through this illegal operation. Um, like, I think they talk about the, the tanks or whatever that at one point that all the, all the refuse is in and that, you know, the pigs have kind of been eating that and they say that the pig, like the, the, the actual idea, not just of the Razorback, but the other pigs where they say that they're starting to cannibalise their own and, and they're behaving weirdly as if, like, the Razorback is the sort of tip of the iceberg of, mm-hmm. of hey, this could get even worse and um, yeah, so that's sort of like the cannery and the brothers kind of loop in with the Razorback itself, and they've been get you know the more depraved and messed up their own operation is, where they get to the point where they you know try and um, murder and rape a woman who could be a threat to their operation. Um, you know, the Razorback ends up cleaning it out, like the fact that it it, it rams their van and they get away. Yeah, it's almost like it doesn't it doesn't attack argues character he gets enough time to get in the in the truck and bugger off yeah and then gets to the car and gets mauled and there's almost like 
they're kind of two sides of the same monster in a way, which I thought was pretty, um, pretty fascinating about Definitely. it. Yeah, and then and then there's that scene as you're saying they they kind of cannibalize themselves in a way, and there's that great scene with uh, Bill Kerr's Jake where he's he's in the the mud after having shot the the Razorback himself and goes off to go and I think secure the kill in a way and ends up in the mud and around with all these other pigs around him. And mm. it's, it's quite a terrifying scene. And, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a sad scene as well with uh, what happens with the dogs and stuff like that. But it's a, it's a great scene. And there's, you know, moments of, of tension and stuff like that throughout this film that, that work in small elements. You know, there's a, there's a moment earlier as well with a, a windmill, which is just fantastic. And, that's mm. its own moment of, you know, five minutes of tension. And it's great how it just, you know, they're all, there's no repeated moments of, of fear and, or, or terror. They're Although all unique say, in their own way. Yeah. I would say you could have a drinking game that every time that Bill Kerr roars in, in anguish <laughs> and rage, um, as the camera sort of pans out to him or pans away from him, there's at least three or four moments. I think you could get a shot or two in, but, um, yeah, well, like, it's one of the things that I, I like thinking about it too, that with his character, you know, he's basically the greatest threat to both the brothers and the Razorback because they're afraid of him. And the Razorback, you know, he's the only challenge to the Razorback, mm. um, you know, with his relentless hunting, the sort of Ahab-Moby relationship. But it, And it takes the brothers and the Razorback working together, you know, not overtly, to take him out, you know, they, they cripple him and leave him out there yeah. and then the back finishes him off, which is again kind of reflects what happens with the female journalist, the American. They sort of do the, the they sort of do the initial damage and the Razorback is like their cleanup squad. Um, so again it kind of emphasizes that weird sort of relationship that they have that isn't you know, isn't overt. It's not like it's their pet or, you know, anything like that. But they seem to be um, you know, they're in on its existence and they're kind of aiding and abetting its own behaviour because it's helping them out at the same time. And I find that that's a really interesting mechanic with the film. It, it makes me um, think that it elevates it a bit more than just a stand. And one of the things that elevates it a bit more than just being a standard creature feature where, you know, monster rolls into town, wreaks havoc, or people roll into monster territory and monster takes them out kind of thing. So... Yeah, I think it really, really adds to the menace and, and it adds a level of weird absurdity to the proceedings as well, which, you know, again, is unsettling, much like films like Whoop Whoop and Wake and Fright and, um, you know, a lot of, I think, Australian films from that period where where you're going into a, an area that's being colonised by, you know, you, you know, it's usually white people going into areas that um, there are white people have set up shop, but... We're not we we're not compatible with the landscape yes. in some way. Yeah. yeah, and it's reflected in either the threat, you know, in this case the Razorback and the other pigs, which obviously is a growing threat, um, and the people because they're they're not they're not um, sink, sinking in with the landscape. It, it's they're they're becoming aberrant in their own way, which the brothers I think are a great reflection of. Yeah. yeah. They're, and they're consuming the local wildlife again. Like they're going around, they're shooting the roos, and you got everybody seems to be shooting roos. 
and um, you know, it's just they're mincing them up and and turning them into yeah, tins of dog food, and and it's there's something like you know, in a way, is the monster just the Razorback? No, it's not these freaky brothers. It's not the the cannery and the operation of that, but it's the whole town, which, like um, I said about Whoop Whoop again with um, Hills of Eyes, it's the same thing. It's like in the same way with Hills of Eyes, the tribe of the, the mutants there in the town, that's the monster. It's it's the whole mechanism, and that's what makes it even more frightening. So, I agree, yeah. yeah. And, you know, the sad thing is about this film is that I think it cost about $5 million to make, and in Australia it made... Uh, it grossed eight hundred and one thousand dollars, and in the US it only did one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And it's sad because up until I mean I, I I could be wrong, but up until two thousand and four's Rogue or two thousand and six I think it was Rogue, uh, Greg McLean's film, his follow up yep, to yep. Wolf Creek, brilliant film. I you know absolutely love that film. We ha- we didn't get any other you know, monster films. And it's really sad because I, I would have liked to have seen what Australian uh, directors could do with monster films. And, you know, it's it's not until this year, at least uh, with Red Billabong, that, you know, we we had a, you know, a, a native monster essentially on screen. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of history, uh, you know, from uh, Aboriginal history and stuff like that that could be mined. And it's sad that, you know, that really wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't followed through, especially in this era, because we did have a lot of great horror films or genre mm. films. You know, the new wave period. You know, as as people who've heard with uh, Man from Hong Kong and and many other films. You know, this was the great period for for genre films in Australian cinema. People are actually going to see genre films. Uh, yeah. Just unfortunately, not Razorback. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. I, th- I th- and I think you're right. Look, I think we're. I haven't seen Red Billabong yet, but I'm curious to. And I'd say the only other example I can think of is is the show Clever Man with the, um, you know, you've both got the hairy people and then you've got the, I think it's Namurador. Yep. Um, you know, I'm sure someone will be able to correct me on that. The the the, um, the dreaming creature that's roaming around, I won't, I won't give anything, I'll just say anyone who hasn't seen it should watch Clever Man because I think it's fucking great. Um, I agree. It's a great show, yeah. But yeah, yeah, we haven't really had um, much uh, in the way of yeah these creature features, and I think yeah, again, you've got yeah the the native mythology that that could produce you know there's so many wonderful crazy beasts that could be mined upon, and also things like Razorback, where um, ecological horror that comes from outside of Australia that's been imported. Um, and how it conflicts with the landscape is is also uh, yeah. could easily be mined more. I mean, you, like just again another movie that um, Umbrella is bringing out in December, um, which I'm sure people that listen to your podcast will be familiar with. Um, Long Weekend, yeah. where you know um, it's the it's literally the the landscape and the native wildlife. So it's everything that's sort of against the the protagonist. If you call them protagonists or antagonists, because they're a couple of pricks, um, <laughs> they, they definitely are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know that. Yeah, the, it's surprising that we haven't had more of that sort of ecological horror. But I guess um, you know, hopefully, like Rogue, I, I saw that recently as well. I think I we watched it maybe a week or so before I watched Razorback and. Mm. Um. Yeah, it was a it was a great solid film. I mean, there's been a, there was 
was it Bait, which was the shark film? Oh yeah, yeah. And um, there's been uh, was it um, Black was Water as well? Yeah, Black Sorry? Water. Black Water was the Black other. Water, yeah, yeah. Which I haven't seen. Um, which is uh, a good yeah. film. Yeah, it's a, it's solid. And you know, so we do we do have them. They're just. I think they're probably just not as as prolific as they they could be, and especially given yeah. now with the rise of you know Godzilla and King Kong and all that kind of stuff in the US, um, you know, ideally in a in a dream mm. world we'd be making these kinds of films, but unfortunately modern audiences aren't embracing Australian genre films, which is really sad. Um, you yeah. know, but I do hope with you know with the releases that Umbrella does. Um, you know, just to continue pimping them out, you know. Fight <laughs> <laughs> that works for me. <laughs> <laughs> but the, it, for, with the releases that they, they release, you know, I hope that people do seek them out because you learn so much about these films. And they're certainly films, you know, like Long Weekend, which I, I absolutely love that film. And, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful horror mm. film. But, you know, there, there are a lot of films from those eras, you know, 70s and 80s that didn't get the audience back then. And I think that modern day audiences, well, I hope modern day audiences will appreciate them a lot more. Um, mm. And even if you, you know, if you watch a film like Razorback and you're not a fan of the actual horror elements of it, you know, there is still something there for you in the sense that it looks beautiful. And mm. if you're not interested in that, then you've got a great horror film as well. So, exactly. it, it, you know, it's a win-win in my guess, at least. Oh, I, I agree completely. It's like it's, I think one of the things that we've been really fortunate in that period was the amount of craft that went in to these films. Like when you mentioned guys like Semler and, and you know, directors like Mulcahy and, you know, guys like Miller and, um, oh, God, you know, just a couple, just the, the, the use of the landscape mm. and, and and just extending, yeah, through to the production design. Like these are beautifully made films. So, yeah, on some level I think you'll get something out of them. But I think with Razorback, I, look, I think if you if you like horror films, I, I, I'd be surprised if you don't like this film because it is, um, yeah, sure, it's a bit weird at times, but I think some of the best horror films are weird and unsettling and and um, you know uh, throw you throw you off whack a bit. And I think that this is uh, maybe at the time it was a little bit too um, absurd. I think maybe for audiences at the time, but I think that there's a lot to really enjoy um, as a snapshot of that period and almost like a warped picture again, looking at like the production design and costumes and everything, you know, that the, the, these, um, you know, the, these characters don't look quite like, um, you know, the people of the time, yeah. they, they, they look like a weird sort of representation, but, it's um yeah it's it's a great film and I think it even has a werewolf in London moment. I'm trying to remember whether it's when he gets into the pub the first time or I think it's when she does with John Howard's character and you get that lovely moment where you step into the pub and everybody just turns and looks at them like who the fuck are you and yeah. what are you here and really that's that's what it comes down to with this film is you know that you go you walk into territory that's that's um, dangerous on many levels and, you know, it basically chews, chews people up. Exactly. And there's that jump square that you were talking about before as well where she turns around, she's got the pig face. That's very much <laughs> like uh, American Werewolf in London as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. The, it's just terrifying the, when he has that, that dream sequence in that film as well, which is just a – this would make a great double feature with it, 
you know. That's I, a good point. Yeah, yeah. it would, would work really well. Um, actually, I think it would work really well with Whoop Whoop, um, which is a film <laughs> that I've come to really, really appreciate when I when I finally got to sit down and watch it. Um, yeah, and, and it just it's just so bizarre. And that's the thing is, well, that's part of the point of this show as well is to hopefully bring these sorts of films to people's attention and you know hopefully revisit the films that may not have given got been given a fair run in their first mm. their first sort of day in, in in the sense um so in that regard i guess is that's a good transition to ask you about what's an australian film that you would recommend people seek out and watch and i know i asked you before on um before we started recording and, and you're like wow that's a tough one you know it's a, and it really is a tough one to, to mm. sort of sit down and say so feel free to say a couple if you if you feel okay like great well yeah I've, I've got probably three that i really think which i haven't seen in years for myself and, and and aren't very easy to track down but i'd recommend um trying to which is something i'm going to um one of them would be um John Hillcoat's Ghost of the Civil Dead. Oh yes, yeah. And film, you I presume you've seen that one with, um, you I've, know, I've got a plan to discuss sometime in the near future. Yeah, <laughs> which is just a, a terrifying. You know, it's a it's a fascinating and terrifying film, which in some ways I think um, is probably more relevant now with the idea of um, corporate prisons um, and increasing population of prisoners. And dehumanisation of prisoners—it's um, just utterly terrifying. I think mainly because I mean, it's got David Field, who I fucking love. I think he's one of our greatest actors, um, and I'm surprised that he, to my knowledge, hasn't sort of ever gone overseas. Um, I think we've been lucky because of that. Um, he's such a versatile actor, and in this one, he just goes—you know—he's a character who gets destroyed by the end of it and and almost like i remember watching it this was years ago as a student um found it sat down watched it um during the day and the end um which i think might have been filmed at parliament station because it involves the long i think it's the long escalators that we have going down there um and the score and it's just him going to the train but it's one of the most menacing fucking moments, I think. Just the combination of the score, the way it's shot, the way he, without any words, plays it as he's you know, re-entering society, basically, after he's been chewed up by this prison mm. where some utterly horrible shit happens. Um, you know, you've got Nick Cave in there when he was off his nut and you know, getting up to all sorts of crazy hijinks during the shoot. Um so I'd recommend that one. It's a hard one to find. I do know that. I'm still trying to find a DVD myself. Yeah, they, um, I recently saw somebody selling a, a copy, and it was, they were selling it for a hundred bucks. And yeah, as I was digging it out from the shelves to add on to the ever-growing pile of films that we'll be watching <laughs> and discussing on the show, and yeah, and I, I just casually had a look to see, you know, just in case it was easy for people to find because. Obviously, that's the other thing as well is that, you know, discussing these films on the show, I, I do want them to, you know, be available so people can, to, oh. you know, watch them and, and enjoy them and then come and listen to the episode or listen to the episode and then go and seek them out. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a bother that such a great film, especially with John Hillcoat's career going off with The Road and he did Triple Nine this year. I haven't seen yeah. it yet. Don't think it got two great reviews, but you know, uh, but it's, it's uh, the proposition, and you know, he, he still delivers solid, solid films. Mm. And um, 
yeah, I mean, look, Umbrella brought it out on DVD and it's, it's been long out of print. And, you know, I'd love to see it happen again. I'd love to see it on Blu-ray, but, you know, it's those, one of those things that some sometimes films get caught up in, in weird little enmeshed situations and someone will have to untangle that one. But, you know, if anyone can get hold of it, highly recommend it. Um, I mean, just going on the Australian prison film thing, another film which was a small film from the um, mid-'90s uh, called Every Night, Every Night. I don't know if you've ever seen that, which was I also... I haven't, um, no. Nice. Uh, it's um, David Field again, uh, Bill Hunter as um, the prison warden in possibly one of the most terrifying roles I've ever seen him in because I know he can play some pretty villainous types. Um, and it's based on a play by a guy called Ray Mooney um, who uh, wrote it based on his own experiences at um, Pentridge. And it's a really solid film, beautiful score by um, Paul Kelly, which you can, which I managed to find when it came out. Highly recommend that too. It's a solemn, beautifully written uh, score to accompany it. I'm not sure if it's out on DVD. It's actually one that I'm trying to put on the list at work to say <laughs> we, need, we need to get this film out there because I think it was fantastic. Um, it's a much more realistic portrayal of prison life than something like Civil Dead. but it's uh, And it's very brutal at times, but it's also just um, – it, it's, it's sort of like uh, – how how is a, a character that is in a similar situation kind of gets drawn into this this um, the prison machine and they're not necessarily as um, you know uh, the, the the magnitude of the machine that they're going into doesn't fit the magnitude of the crime like these are guys that could, should probably not be put in with the the monsters but uh, you know this is sort of like a case of somebody tr- uh, sort of transcending and, and surviving the situation and. Mm. Excuse me. It's a, it's a it's a brilliant film. I think it's black and white. Oh sure. Uh, and I highly recommend that. Um, I think yeah, it's it's uh, again David Field knocks it out of the park, and uh, Bill Hunter is just amazing in it as well. Um, I don't think there's much cast there. There's a few sort of guard casters, but they're kind of the key combatants in the situation. Sure. So the the anti- the antagonism between them is is where it works. Um, I was going to say the other film that I'd suggest is thinking of, um, you know, music video directors that became uh, feature directors. There's uh, another guy who whose work I've enjoyed some, some, yes, some not so much. I haven't really checked out Gods of Egypt, but was talking about Alex Proyas here. I've got a soft spot for Dark City and The Crow, two of his films that I really enjoyed. But his first film, which is called um, Spirits of the Air, Gremlins of the Clouds, yes. I believe. yeah. I've uh, never seen that one. I haven't because it's it's impossible to find. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's that's another one I'm trying. So if anyone's interested in that or every night, every night, please feel free to hit Umbrella's Facebook, uh, <laughs> email their Twitter, and say that uh, Simon Sherry, the designer, was on this podcast. He was talking these films up. They sound wonderful. Can we get them happening? You know, enough people say it and maybe it can happen. But this film is great as well. It's um, it's very much a sort of post-apocalyptic, a very quiet post-apocalyptic film. Like, you know, it, it, it deals with the desolate landscape. Um, and so, uh, obviously, it's a three-hander. I think there's only three three people in it. Mm. Um, there's the these brother and sister, I think they are, that, that live in this little um, house near this wall. And there's a guy that comes along. And he wants to get over the wall. I think that's uh, the, that's the basic thing. 
um, but it's, it's beautifully shot. It's a very um, interesting. Like it's all about his interaction with the, these two people, and, and you know, obviously um, the triangle of relationship that sort of works in there. Uh, and it, it's yeah, it's just. A, I remember I, I managed to catch it on video <coughs> again back when I was at um, TAFE. We had a brilliant uh, video library in Box Hill that had stuff like Ghost of the Civil Dead and, yeah. and um, things like that. And I managed to sort of stumble on that one not long after I'd seen The Crow and thought, oh, wow, I, I really loved that. I'd love to see what Alex Proyas did with his first film. And, yeah, I was just blown away and thought it was great. So, <clears throat> Well, we'll be, yeah. we'll be covering um, Dark City is not the next episode, but the, the episode after that will be uh, an episode on Dark City, so that'll be up in a couple of weeks. Oh, fantastic. Um, so, yeah, it's a, you know, Alex Proyas, he's a good director. Um, you know, he obviously has his uh, fans, and obviously he's, uh, anybody who follows him on social media um, gets a very, very entertaining read every now and then. Uh, he, he certainly puts some exciting posts up, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I, it, it's interesting because I know at the time when Dark City was made that he was working on various other projects um, out of his own sort of you know, small shared universe that there was like a webcomic and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, I kind of think that he's one of those guys that um, he should be let off the chain. Like, I, I think it's, you know, Dark City, to me anyway, proved that he can um, come out with a, a, an interesting and novel idea of his own mm. he do, and, and produce it. And I think when he kind of gets shoehorned or, he, like, what it sounds like with Gods of Egypt, because I think that was meant to be Paradise Lost or something and got yep. re-kind of... Um, rebranded yeah well paradise lost which you know it sounded absolutely fantastic and i think the studio there was a change of studio head and they pulled the plug like five days before they were supposed to go shoot and yeah you know they'd already really worked real hard on getting it set up and everything and yeah the change of studio head came along new studio guy said what are we spending hundreds of million dollars on a you know you know angels versus demons kind of film not yep. the not ron howard angel versus demons i mean like <laughs> literal yep. angels and demons <laughs> yeah and um yeah it it uh unfortunately went by the wayside and you know he's there's a really interesting uh interview i highly recommend checking out on cinema australia uh, another local perth guy runs who runs that particular show um matthew eels and highly recommend listening to it. i'll put the link in the show notes as well and it's it's only half an hour long, but he, he managed to get an interview with Alex Proyas, who's uh, understandably a little bit difficult to nail down to get an interview with, um, mm. but it's really a good listen, and you, you get an understanding of his history and, and everything. So, yeah, yeah. So they're really, you know, great recommendations. Highly uh, recommend attempting to seek out those films. And, you know, <laughs> as Simon says, please go and bother Umbrella, um, you know, because they're... Look, I have a list, you know, that that goes very, very long list that I've I've got of desirable films that I'd love to see get released and and stuff like that. So, uh, and Umbrella do a fantastic job of uh, releasing Australian films and getting them out to audiences. So, I really, um, you know, as me being able to speak to somebody who can uh, who you know is associated with the company in a way, uh, thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate it. Not a problem. Look, at the end of the day. 
if I get to do some of these cover, cool covers for these movies, I'll be very, very happy. And, you know, uh, I may have been lucky. Like, well, uh, another film I'd add to the list is um, Philip Brophy's Body Melt, oh, yeah. which is really bizarre an- uh, animal of a film, um, which is coming out on Blu-ray. It's been remastered in December, along with Long Weekend. And it's it's kind of, again, that was in the, that was the early 90s. Um, I missed it when it came out theatrically. It was one of those ones I remember seeing and going, I want to go see it by the time I worked out where I was going to go see it. It was already gone. But um, it's just a bizarre, messed up, um, blackly satirical body horror film um, that's incredibly goopy and gory at times, but also, you know, the horror, as, uh, talking with Philip while working on it, the artwork and, and stuff for it, um, you know, that... that the horror is not necessarily embodied by the the gore, and more by the sort of banal, really weird sort of neighbor esque kind of characters that you get. And heck, you get Harold from Neighbors and <laughs> um, the Night Rider Vince Gill um, as two uh, scientists who work together post World War Two. Um, and any film that's got those two uh, in together, like uh, you know, Man from Hong Kong, where you've got the toe cutter teamed up with Fifi, you know, Chief Fifi as cops. Yep. Um, you know, it's always worth worth a look. So yeah, I'd recommend that one. The Blu-ray of that's going to have some amazing stuff. I mean, I, I put together um, the complete storyboard that Philip had, which is wow. uh, about 113 pages. He did it basically as a, a nine-panel grid comic. Um, so you've got that in there, which is a fantastic document in its own right to have a look at. Sort of a wonderful gallery of stuff and a new feature behind the scenes feature that he's put together from archival footage. Uh, but yeah, that's another one. It's just really bizarre gonzo stuff. Uh, yeah, people either love it or hate it, but I think if if you enjoy off the wall um, horror, if you enjoy things like Peter Jackson's early films. Yep. Um, yeah, that's the obvious comparison everybody makes. So, you know, there's there's sort of, um, uh, you know, touchstones and stuff like brain dead and, and bad taste in the way it's sort of made. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you want to see some weird shit involving people like William McInnes, Lisa McCune, Brett Klimo, um, Ian Bishop, Vince Gill, uh, Neil Foley from Monster Pictures is in there. Um, yeah, I recommend checking it out. It's it's bizarre. It's it's a It's an interesting film. I'm looking forward to it because I actually haven't seen it, so uh, it's a it's a blight on my list. Uh, but I've <laughs> I've got it penciled, and I'm looking forward to December hitting and and it coming out. Um, so in that regard, I guess um, you know, as you're saying, you do you do great art, and I really I love seeing whenever you put stuff up, and you've been doing these kind of Cheers. 3D things as well, which are really exciting and interesting. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah, trying to teach myself how to, to um, produce stuff in 3D with the night and maybe try and get some of my work into the real world in three dimensions. We'll see how that goes, but yeah. Yeah, it'll be exciting. it would be really good. Um, so you've got a – do you have any social media accounts and stuff like that which you can uh, pimp out so people can make sure to check out your work as well? Um, oh, yeah, I guess so, yeah. Not that I've done – I've pimped for work now. I can pimp for myself. <laughs> Um, yeah, you can find me on at Simon Sherry, so it's Simon, then S-H-E-R-R-Y on Twitter. Uh, that might be my handle on Instagram as well. I think it is. I try to keep it simple. And on Facebook, my um, I've got a, uh, what is it, Simon Paul, Sherry, Simon Paul Sherry Illustration and Design, which is just Simon Sherry Scribbles after your Facebook.com. If people want to find me, I'm always happy to 
chat art and design and movies and pop culture shit, whatever. Um, I highly yeah. recommend it. And I'll put links in the show notes as well. So please, uh, people listening, do go and check it out because, um, you know, you work on some great covers and your your other work as well is really exciting too. And I really enjoyed going back to what you're saying about Clever Man when that was on. You did some great stuff there as well. And oh, I, I love looking at that as, you know, as the episodes rolled on. So it was really good. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, that that show, like, to me was a standout of um, for Australian content. I'm a bit bit miffed that they only got an actor norm, I think, for hair and makeup because I think there's some pretty brilliant performances in there. Yeah, don't get uh, me started on that. I was... On the TV yeah. side, I was I was pissed off about that. Box got a fucking nomination, and you know, that like like I think I said on Twitter, reacting to it, that there's there's no MVP on that show. Like everybody, um, particular, you know, uh, you could you could single out different actors for different things, but everybody sort of brought something really great to that show, and I I thought it's something that really you know personally kind of made me a lot more aware of. Um, indigenous affairs and um indigenous culture you know it's just great because being a whiter than white whitey it's always good to to um to get you know a bit more of an education and just a bit more insight into like what what um what our indigenous uh people uh do culturally and and how they represent themselves and i think it's fantastic it sounds like it's doing gangbusters overseas um in the states and and europe and people are loving it so you know i can't remember who's representing it there but yeah they're from what i understand it's it's doing pretty well which is great to see i'm really really proud of i mean i had nothing to do with that tv show at all i just want to make (laughs) it clear but (laughs) i'm proud of you know as an australian i'm proud of the fact that you know people overseas are appreciating it so that's you know that's really great, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I guess we should wrap up because I know. I mean, we could talk for hours and hours <laughs> and hours and yes, about Australian uh, cinema and Australian TV. Uh, but it's it's nearing midnight for you in over east, and uh, thanks to daylight savings, it's still only eight o'clock in the evening uh, for me. So um, I will let you go, but I'm sure that I will no doubt uh try and wrangle you back on to discuss some other australian film because uh you know it's been fantastic to be able to discuss it with you and And i'd be happy to chat anytime you know i'm obviously not afraid to say a few things so um yeah it's good it's good (laughs) so yeah thank you very much uh and everybody make sure to check out all of simon's stuff and yeah go and bother umbrella and uh, go and check out their website. As I said, I'll put I'll put stuff on the uh, the show notes. Um, they they do some great stuff. So yeah, yeah. No worries, man. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode on The Last New Wave. Hopefully the four films that we've discussed, Wake and Fright, Man from Hong Kong, Puberty Blues and Razorback have all uh, been exciting films to watch if you've, if you've sought them out and, and uh, really enjoyed that, that particular aspect of Australian cinema. 
hopefully we will this won't be the last that you'll hear of uh, the Australian New Wave because uh, no doubt we'll discuss many of the films that, that are from that era as as mentioned in the first episode in this particular bunch uh, there was over 400 films made during that period so it's pretty exciting for our next episodes we jump forward a couple of decades to uh, the castle and I'm joined by Bernadette as well as uh, it will be his first time on the show in the sense that it was the first episode that we recorded together but it's the second time that he appears again difficult maths but I'm joined by the host of pop culture case study David Hart so stick around and listen to that particular episode which should be up in the next couple of weeks uh, for the time being you can hear previous episodes on abfilmreview.com and also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at The Last New Wave. And make sure if you do have the chance to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It just helps people seek out the show and, and become more aware of it. And don't be afraid to share it as well. So once again, thanks for listening to The Last New Wave. <laughs>